we left off at the end of John chapter 10, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with some verses that we kind of covered last week. We're going to start in John chapter 10, verse 30, and do to the end of the chapter, verse 42. So John 10, 30 through 42. And if you would, please stand with me. Uh, the reading of the word of the Lord this morning will be on the screens, phone, app, or you can open your actual Bible to read with me. Uh, let's read the word of the Lord together. I and the Father are one. The concluding words of Jesus from a, an answer that he gave. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. He's quoting Psalm 82 there. If he called them gods to whom the word of the Lord came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am in the father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, just thank you so much for the opportunity we have to just continue in the proclaiming of your word. We've been proclaiming it through song, through prayer. Uh, we've already proclaimed it earlier this morning as we um, read as a call to worship. Father, as we take this time and, and offer ourselves a moment of instruction and encouragement and equipping uh, from your word, I pray that you just give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would want to communicate today uh, through this glorious text. Jesus, I pray that you uh, let my words be congruent and in line with who you are. In fact, I pray that you help me get out of the way to see you high and lifted up, showcase and magnify this morning. Father, we thank you for moms. We thank you for their diligence, for their faithfulness. We thank you for the fact that, that you use an earthly parental relationship to communicate such an incredible hev heavenly truth day in and day out. Um, God, we're, we're grateful that the picture that we have um, of love and of care in, in, in many of our earthly moms, and we know that that's not true of every, but in many of our earthly moms, Lord, we, we still recognize that you're better. That you're better. You're better than the best dad. You're better than the best mom. You're better than the best husband or wife. You're better. And you offer us to trust you in that today. In your holy and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. So I started off at the end of an answer that Jesus was, was giving the Jews that asked him a question or the religious leaders that asked him a question. And I start off with the statement, I and the Father are one. Now, I want to tune us into this whole chapter 10 here. It's a very interesting construct, um, but it kind of goes back to verse 6 where the author John is writing, and this is, if you have a red letter Bible, you can see that this is plainly in black letter. So this is not a, a moment where the person of Jesus is speaking. Now, a little disclaimer, I do believe every word of this book from Genesis to Revelation is functionally red letters, even if you're like, wait, but it's red and black. No, it's all the words of Christ. We, we believe it's all the words of God. 
But this is a part where you get to see God speaking through his Holy Spirit, through the author John in verse 6. He said, this figure of speech Jesus used. And that figure of speech was Jesus talking almost as a parable or as an analogy to explain his relationship as a shepherd and as a gatekeeper, which Justin and Kurt did such a good job the last two weeks unpacking for us. But we, we follow up at the end of this chapter with him kind of answering the questions that that figure of speech prompted. So he mentions this figure of speech, I'm a good shepherd. I am, I am a gatekeeper. And here's all these different characters in this analogy. There's Jesus himself as the good shepherd and as the gate. And then there's also like the, the characters of the enemy and the robber and, and those that are competing for the voice of the sheep. There's the characters of the sheep that are kind of in this little figure of speech that Jesus uses. And all of this promotes a question. Now, we don't know exactly how chapter 10 was compiled. We've been talking through the, the Gospel of John together that you see uh, kind of some, some geographic and even chronologic move through, through the Israel and through Jerusalem. You see a number of feasts mentioned, and, and you can know when and where Jesus is having these conversations and kind of the backdrop and the background for each and every one of them. A lot of scholars are, for, for verses 1 through, really 1 through 21, a lot of scholars are kind of out in the dark on exactly where that happened. Was this an insight that the author, John, because keep in mind, this is not like our Twitter feeds or our Facebook feeds. This is not, he was not updating this in real time. The time that he wrote this gospel, Jesus had already resurrected. All right. So he was looking back saying, people need to know this story. And I'm going to carve out an argument here that's, that's even functionally different. It's the same information, but it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I'm going to write this letter or write this gospel, write this good news proclamations, what John was doing so that, and we've talked about this numerous times in John chapter 20, he says, so that I write these things so that you might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. That's the whole reason. I said he would have been a really bad grade in college because his thesis came like at the very end of his big term paper here that is the gospel of John. He writes these things so that we might believe. So you have to keep in mind that from his perspective, this might not have all happened chronologically. And he might have said, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, I need to include this little figure of speech part in there. I don't know if this happened right before the question happened. I don't know if this happened at the conclusion of Jesus and being involved in the temple in chapter 9. But we do know that this is really important um, understanding of Jesus' relationship to us as a shepherd and as a gatekeeper or as the gate, I guess technically, not just the keeper, but the gate himself. It's a really important philosophy and framework as we lead into this question that arises in verse 22. I know I said I started in verse 30 and went going through verse 42, and yet I've yet to really use any of those. Give me a minute. Um, verse 22, it says, There again, they were at the, the, the time of dedication, the feast of dedication that took place in Jerusalem. We know this is in the winter. We know this is moving months past the, the feast or the festival of the booths or the tabernacles that we've talked about previously. And we know that he now has an audience from verse 22 on. He has an audience that may have heard his good shepherd teaching, may not have, or may have heard of something similar. But they ask a question in verse 24. And their question is, their question is this. So the Jews, the religious leaders gathered around and said, how long will you keep us in suspense. If you're the Christ, will you tell us? So functionally, they're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? 
are you the Christ? And Jesus unpacks this discourse on explaining his identity that concludes with the statement, I and the Father are one. Now, there's a huge practical theology moment here that's taken place in this block of Scripture. Kurt talked about it last week, really shined a, a light on the fact that Jesus used some specific language in saying that the way you know I and the Father are one is no one snatches my sheep from my hand and no one snatches God's sheep from his hand. We have the same hand, okay? So he is, he is leveraging this understanding of care and protection that this is his identity statement. Think of all the things Jesus could have said to build up the argument or to build up the rhetoric of me and the Father, the Father and I are one, but what he uses is this concept of hands. No one snatches them from my hand. No one snatches them out of the Father's hand. And he gives me, he has given them to me. Like that is his lead up into this moment that he says, I and the Father are one. Now, why do I say that's a huge practical theology moment? Because one of the things that's cool about Jesus is he knows the question that's under the question. Now, they asked him, are you the Christ? But what they really were asking him is, are you safe? Can we trust you? Because if you think about it, there's a lot on the line for them in their religious construct. If this is God and I don't trust him, whew, that's a lot. There's a lot at stake. And if it's not God and I do trust him, well, then I might just be up a creek. Like I could be lost and estranged for eternity from the Father. And so when they say to him, are you the Christ? It's really them asking the question, can I trust you? And look at how he answers. You're safe in my hands. Think about that. Can I trust you, Jesus? Yes, you're safe in my hands. It's like Jesus was a, is it an Allstate? In good hands commercial right there? And I don't mean to add some comic relief to that. I really want to lean into this for a moment. And honestly, I could preach this part of the sermon and step down. Because there is a glorious truth in the re reminder and the reality that we're safe in the hands of Jesus. You want to know why? Because he still answers those questions of can we trust you? And we need to realize that we ask him at two levels. The first one we ask him is can we trust you with our eternity? Can we trust you? Can we trust Jesus with our eternity? His answer, I and the Father, I and the Father are one. You're safe in our hands. You're safe in our hands. Your eternity, John Piper said this in a, in a sermon I listened to around this. He said, all of who Jesus is is relevant to your eternal safety. You are safe in his hands. And so from an eternity standpoint, we have to first acknowledge that when it comes to our eternal relationship, our eternal longevity, our, our eternal abundance, and our eternal life, that we are safe in the hands of Jesus. Many of in this room have asked and trusted Jesus with our eternity for many, many years. But there's another group of people in the room today, some who are believers in Jesus, some who might not be. And they're saying, can I trust you because of circumstance? Mother's Day is not easy for everybody. You want to know why? Because there are moms 
that haven't been able to have kids. And when that comes crashing down, the question is, can I trust him? Is he good? I desire this, Lord. Why is this not happening? There are moms that want a son or a daughter to tell them Happy Mother's Day, and they're not here. Maybe they're estranged. Maybe they've passed away. They're not here to say it. There are moms who look to the left and the right of them and realize that God's design of a helpmate and of of, uh, someone to be a co-laborer with them in the life of family, and that person's not there. And they might ask the question, can I trust you? Can I trust you? Can I trust you? There are moms who long, there are people that long to be moms that maybe aren't for a reason of, of maybe, it, maybe it was a, a, an issue of, of not being able to have kids or maybe it was that they're not married and they might ask the question, can I trust you? And we don't even have to make this about moms. There are people in this room, men or women, young or old, son or daughter, single or married, that every single one of us have had a circumstance in life where we wondered, is this the one that we can trust Jesus on or not? Is this the one? Is this the thing? I'm ready to not trust you because I don't think it applies to me. And the response that he would give to you and I would be the same that he gave these religious leaders. You are safe in my hands. I and the Father are one. You're safe in my hands. I just think somebody needs to be reminded today that they are safe in the hands of Jesus this morning. They're safe with their insecurities, safe with their doubts, safe with their pains and with their struggles. And in fact, I know a Jesus that says, come to me. You who are weary, anxious, and heavy laden, you can be safe in my hands. I'll give you rest. We continue on. We see in verse 31, the response to this is the Jews, the, these religious leaders. I feel like they're a, a recurring cast like in a play. If you've ever seen like a, a stage production, you know, it, in a movie, there's a limit, an unlimited amount of extras and cast, it feels like. They can always bring someone in off scene or they can bring, you know, pay to have somebody uh, be part of the production. But in like a play, there's only a limited number of space back behind the curtain. And, and a lot of times you see the same group of people be the same role or, or kind of like a chorus or, or a group. I'm thinking like the Sharks and the Jets from West Side Story. You know, like just I see these same guys coming up again over and over. And we don't have a lot of their names. We don't have a lot of their names. We know there were religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so you, I think you're led to believe that there's a lot of overlap between who these religious leaders are throughout Jesus' interaction with them. And so it's this recurring cast. And this time it says that they brought something with them in verse 31. It says they picked up stones. Um, This is also mentioned in John chapter 8, at the end of John chapter 8, I think it's verse 59, where they picked up stones, except the wording is different this time. The first in John chapter 8 in the Greek, it literally means there was a stone over there and they grabbed it to stone Jesus. In verse 31, it's they brought stones with them. Okay, now this is a totally different understanding. It's not that something Jesus said enraged them and their response reactively was to throw rocks at him. (laughs) This time it's, we're carrying them with us. We're bringing the ammo to the gunfight because we are judging that you're not going to please us. We're judging functionally that we wouldn't be safe in your hands. We're judging that we couldn't trust you. 
And here's the part that kind of struck me this week. Don't I do the same sometimes? Do I ever bring ammo for the reasons I can't trust Jesus to the gunfight? Do I ever encounter the Lord in prayer or in circumstance or in scenario where I'm like, no, uh-uh, not going to do it for me. I'm already got my stones. I've got the thing that I'm going to launch at you to say, I know I couldn't trust you in that, Lord. I knew I couldn't trust you in that. I, this, it's great that it happens to everybody else on my Instagram feed or my Facebook feed. or It's great that everybody else gets blessed and favor and all that stuff, but I just don't think it's going to happen to me. I found myself being really really guilty and lumped in with the Jewish leaders here because I feel like sometimes I bring my stones of unbelief too. And I carry them right on in. And the reality is that this whole chapter, not only is it a discourse that we're safe in his hands, but that he's patient with us. He's so patient with us. I bring stones of judgment. I bet you do too to justify my places of unbelief, to justify my self, self-loathing, to justify my non-commitment, my lack of diligence. When suffering strikes your life, oh well, Jesus isn't good now. No, it's a lot easier to sing King of My Heart if you never feel let down. It's a lot harder to sing it if you feel like he's let you down. And that feeling I'm telling you, when, if we can recognize that we live in that tension, that's where you, maybe like me, have brought some stones of judgment. I don't think Jesus is good in this area. He's probably good for most people. I don't think he's good here. I don't think he's good here. I don't think he's good here. How patient he is with us. How patient he is with us. In verse 32 and 33, says that they charge him with blasphemy and and. He's going to double back around to this as we keep going. Um, But they still can't see clearly who he is. They don't see that salvation is for them. In fact, they see Jesus and his way as opposition. And as we go on to 34, Jesus finally answers them. And they, they say in verse 33, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man make yourself God. And he answers them with a real interesting answer. I'm going to read 34. Um, through 38 here. He says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. I'm actually going to go ahead and stop there. I'm going to point out something here that's not necessarily the theme of the sermon today, but I just can't, I just can't blow by it. Um, the first verse, he says, is it not written in your law? First of all, that word law is affirming the entire Old Testament. So when Jesus says it's not written in your law, the reason I know that is he doesn't quote from the Torah. When he says, I said, you are gods, he quotes from Psalm 82. And, and, and his insight into that is that the Lord had called God's cap, small g people of, as Douglas Moo, uh, the theologian said, people that had a divine charge on their life to carry out a God-given task. And so if you think about it, um, it's like the prophets. The word of God came to them. Thus saith the Lord. And it spoke through people or even the judges. Shameless plug. Excited for our judges precept study that's going to be starting up this week as we journey through judges and see these men and women that God put in place um, for, to teach us and to instruct us and to ultimately point us to Jesus. But I do want to point out something here. As it said in your law, 
So Jesus affirms the Old Testament, and then he says, and Scripture cannot be broken. This is a great celebration for us. If you ever look for a a verse to really affirm what we believe about the Bible, this is a great one that's housed here in the end of John 10. The Scripture cannot be broken. Um, I was on Facebook this week. can sometimes be dangerous. Uh, but got to, got to hear one of my favorite preachers kind of go, go on a little aside about this. So I'm going to kind of echo his thoughts today. But I uh, got a Matt Chandler. I saw him in a video that was shared around my, my Facebook feed. And so I'm going to kind of join in with him today. Did you know that we last weekend celebrated uh, a story that was the culmination of 22 movies? I'm not going to give any spoilers. But 22 movies... That has grossed over $22 billion. That has a number of cast of characters. If you don't know what I'm, if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Talking about Avengers Endgame, okay? Um, A number of cast of characters, dozens of characters, all these different story arcs, but really one central theme, which is the security of the universe. Like our whole culture has gone bananas over this. I remember trying to see the movie last week and like, any place that had reserved seats, it was like you could sit in the, either in the front row or the awkward chair that no one had. Like all the, there was no, there was all single seats everywhere, or you just couldn't get tickets at all. Like it was insane. But some of you guys might not know this about the Bible and the reason that we think these verses are important. The Bible is not an essential for Commonwealth City Church. It's not an essential. The Bible is the essential source of truth, source of. Uh, life for us. We believe it is the word of God. And the Bible, much, in much greater than the Avengers, Marvel universe, whatever, is one story spanning 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, 40, over 40 authors. And, and it's essentially this. You might think, oh, the Bible's got a lot of things about it. Yeah, it does. The Bible does say a lot of things. But more than it is your roadmap to life, more than it is your instruction manual, more than it is your source of encouragement or discernment or wisdom. Now, it can certainly be those things. I don't want you to hear me say the Bible doesn't do that. It does. But its primary purpose is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis points to Jesus. Exodus, Jesus. Leviticus, Jesus. Judges, Jesus. Jeremiah, Jesus. Revelation, Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. And the central reality of of the Bible is it's a story, a grand story that's not about me or you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and his relationship with us, his character that we can trust. It's about us understanding from Genesis to Revelation that we are safe in his hands. And I think it's this that Jesus kind of says with the smirk, is it not written in your law, which by the way points to me? Is it not written in your Old Testament, which by the way points to me? And goes on into this understanding of the word came to lesser gods, came to prophets, came to judges, came to people like Samuel, people like Jeremiah. If it would come to them, and we would call them little G gods, how much greater am I? And you see Jesus use this type of parallelism a lot through his teachings. One of the most notable is in Luke chapter 11. He's teaching people how to pray. And he said, if you would go knock on your neighbor's door and they would eventually come and answer because you've annoyed them. Literally, that's what it says. Because of your persistence, 
but it has the emphasis that you've annoyed your neighbor. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I would be home by myself, I would be terrified if somebody would knock on my door. Like I just was assuming the worst, you know, that they were gonna like burn the house down or whatever. And I would like, you treat these, this person at your door a little bit like they're a T-Rex, like if you just freeze. Maybe they won't notice any movement in the house, even though there's doors and walls and all sorts of stuff. And I remember, I remember I would sit down in the hall, like hiding out from someone knocking at the door. And I used to play a game in my head of like, how many knocks will it take before I will eventually go enter? Like they know that I'm here, right? You know, how many knocks will it take? All of us have probably done that at one form or fashion, whether it's how many cell phone rings will it take? How many knocks on the door will it take? And eventually we kind of will give in. So Jesus says in Luke 11, If you can go knock on your neighbor's door to the point that you annoy him, that he'll open it, how much more will your father that loves you respond to you? And he does the same thing here. If you're willing to call lesser guys sons of God, how much more is the sent one, the holy one, the consecrated one, the word dwelling among you that you might acknowledge him? And it's interesting that they referred to him as a blasphemer. This is the part that we want to double back around to. It wouldn't have been weird for Satan or his demons to call Jesus a blasphemer. That would make sense. But those that he created in his image, those that he loves, those that he cherishes, oh, what patience Jesus has with them, what patience he has with us. Now, Speaking of that patience, I want you to look at his answer. He says this in verse 38 or 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. The father is in me and I'm in the father. The word know and understand is the same Greek word. It's from the root gnosko, but it's past tense and future tense that you will have recognition and you will continue to grow in understanding that I am the father are one. Let's unpack this for a minute. Even if you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may grow and understand. Pay attention to the works. This is interesting because most of the time Jesus is talking about pay attention to him, pay attention to him, pay attention to him. I'm right in front of you. You can't see. He does this whole thing with feeding like 5,000 people, which you really know is probably closer to 20,000 people. And then says that you guys come to this for food don't be impressed with the sign and be impressed with the person that the sign points to. Like he, he says that. And then this seems to kind of contradict unless you recognize that John wrote this again from a determinist point of view. He knows what's happening. And I think there's some foreshadowing going on here. Pay attention to the work. Has Jesus walked on water? Yes. Has he turned water into wine? Yes. Just in this narrative. Has he seen a a lame man at a pool begin to walk and leap? Has he made blind men see? Has he healed people? Has he fed thousands of people with a few loaves and a few pieces of fish? Yes, but friends, there's a greater work coming than all those. There's a much greater work that's on the way than feeding 5,000 or walking on water or healing a lame man or healing a blind man. And the reality is, is that the thing he wants, I think the thing he says, even if you don't believe, you need to pay attention to what I'm going to do. If I say I'm the son of God, if I say I'm God, pay attention to what God does. And it's getting ready to be lived out in a specific work of his. 
There are tons of examples of Jesus' patience with people. There are tons of examples of his grace. There are tons of examples of his love. Can you know that Jesus is loving in the way that he stoops and, and, stoops and lifts the head of a marginalized person? Absolutely. Can you know that Jesus is loving in the way that he provides dignity and value for someone that's undignified or lacking value in society. I mean, you see that with a woman at the well. You see that with a blind man. Absolutely. But when we look at what the Bible says, how do we know that God demonstrated his love for us? Can we glean some of that wisdom from the way that he lifts the head of the lowly or the way that he serves a prostitute or a tax collector or a sinner? Sure, of course you can. But you're settling for like third or fourth option. How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that we're safe in his hands? How do we know Romans 5, 8? JR, you can pull that one up. Says this, that God demonstrates, or shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Pay attention to the work. Pay attention to the work because that work is all the evidence we need to recognize that Jesus loves us and desires to save us and desires to, desires to redeem us and restore us. Pay attention to the work. Believe him. You were the indignified and he did more than lift your head. He went to the cross. You were the valueless and he did more than shower you with wealth and affluence. He went to the cross. You were the lowly. And he did more than give you a meal or invite you to a banquet. He went to the cross. We are the broken, the wretched. We're the blasphemer. And what does he do for us? He goes to the cross. You're safe with him. Believe his work. And hopefully, believe him. Verse 39. Stood right in the midst of all this unpacked his works, foreshadowed his future work, and yet they didn't believe and they sought to kill him. And yet he escapes. Think about this for a minute. He's really good at this, isn't he? Like he gets away every single time. Do you think, do you think he gets away every single time because he's like Carmen Sandiego? That's how old I am. For those of you that did the Facebook thing this week, I'm Carmen Sandiego old. Um, I used to play that game on computer when I was in fourth grade. Do you think that he's just a super slippery, tricky guy and he can just vanish out of thin air? No, Jesus, isn't, Jesus does not get away because he's good at getting away. Jesus gets away because there's a divine truth, theological truth here. When it comes to his death, he's in charge. When it comes to death, he's in charge. And he is sovereign over that and it wasn't his time. You see this mentioned multiple times through scripture. His time had not yet come, his time had not yet come. So he's able to get away. And then here's how we're going to conclude today, this last little bit. Verses 40 through 42. Seems random. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. To the place where John had been baptizing. Do you know where John the Baptist lived? Not in the city. He was not a city dweller. This dude was a desert dweller. He was in the wilderness. And I think it's funny that the place that many come to see him is through tough terrain. Think about that for a minute. The city, Jesus is on display in the heart of the most influential city in the region. But the place that many come to him are the place that it takes a lot of work to get to him. I think there's something significant there. I think there's also something significant that the good news of Jesus is for the whole world. 
It's not just for the city people. It's not just for the hometown crowd. It's not just for the Jews. The gospel of Jesus is for the whole world. And the fact that he went to another place to see people coming to believe in him is a great reminder that it's for the whole world. And then check this part out in verse 41. As they came, many came and they said, John did no sign. That is not a super compliment right there. Like John is nothing impressive about him. That's basically the same thing as saying there is nothing impressive about John the Baptist. But everything that John said about this man was true. Oh, might that be our testimony. There is nothing impressive about me. There's nothing impressive about you, but everything that we testify and witness about Jesus is absolutely true. Everything we say about him. John's life was one that witnessed about Jesus. This is also kind of a cool legacy moment here. This is the last time John the Baptist is mentioned. His ministry is mentioned in the Gospel of John. And the way that it's mentioned is propping up that his ministry lived on. John did no sign that he was a faithful witness. Nothing magical or supernatural about him. Moms, there's a little mom moment. You play such an important role in so many lives. And oftentimes, you feel anonymous. You do it humbly. And there's very rarely supernatural things about being a mom. But there is something powerful in your faithful witness. It might not be tons of signs and wonders, but it could be the faithful reminder that the things you testify about for Christ might be true in your homes, in your families, in your relationships. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for continuing to be a faithful witness. Moms to be, if you're not there yet, single, maybe early in marriage, Moms to be, start. Don't wait on kids to practice faithfulness. Start doing that now. Husbands to be, husbands currently, start practicing and leading the charge of faithfulness now. Might that be true of all of us? And then verse 42, and many believed in him there. That doubles us back around to the thing I said at the beginning. We have 35,000 choices we can make every single day. The most important one, do you believe? It's the most important choice you can make. Do you believe? Did you carry your judgment stone in here today? Saying, ah, Jesus stuff's not going to apply to me, or I'm looking for a reason for it not to work. Yes, you can put it down here today, and you can believe. You can hear testimony. You can pay attention to his work on the cross. Now, I want to invite you into some questions as we kind of conclude today, um, as JR brings them up on the screen. It's just three to kind of offer you just some points to ponder. And the first one is, What are the places you need to see that you're safe in Jesus' hands today? What are the places you need to see that you're safe in his hands? He can handle it. He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your frustrations. He can handle your anxiety. He can handle your insecurity. He can handle the places you've been let down. He can handle it if you felt like a liar when you sang earlier, he's never going to let me down because you felt let down. He can handle it. You're safe in his hands. What are the places that you need to see that you are safe in Jesus' hands today? How is Jesus patient with you? And how do you respond to that patience? One of my favorite verses in 1 Timothy when Paul says that God exhibited his perfect patience to him. He said this statement is trustworthy and true. He was a sinner, the foremost, and God exhibited his patience with him. And of all the decisions you can make today, the most important one is to believe in Christ. What's keeping you from believing today. And there's a couple parts to that one. It's a double barrel question. 
What's keeping you from trusting in the Savior that you claim to believe in some specific areas, whether it's family or finances or job or identity or whatever? Or what's keeping you from believing in him today because you've just never said you want to believe in Jesus? Or you've just never said that you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What's keeping you today? And then lastly, it's just the recognition of the truth in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Would you repent and believe? Would you repent and believe? Would this be a place today that you can experience a relationship with Jesus and see that you're safe in his hands? I hope so. Friends, I hope so. I'll be praying that for us today as we ponder through some of these questions. What places are you, can you see that you're safe? How is he patient? How can you respond? And what's keeping you from belief?